You're on top of the ambulances? Yeah, I'll do the white paper. Gonna, okay, I can cool. enter that. Maybe not literally on top of the ambulances. That seems like a bad thing. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Sarah Cliff and Dara Lind, our exciting new Tuesday lineup. It's amazing. It's great to have you guys here. We've got a a cool white paper coming up about ambulances and Obamacare, and uh, it's fun. It's fresh. It's a little bit of a different twist for The Weeds, really, because it It says that maybe giving people health insurance is bad. Oregon fans of that case study will not find this. Well, there are some surprising things. Yeah. Surprises for everyone. Yeah, it's but, it's interesting. It's hey. interesting. Um, but first, tragically, the various scandals swirling around EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt have gotten a little bit sidelined by the return of the scandals swirling around Donald Trump with a raid on on his lawyer's office. But there's more there's more policy meat to the to the Pruitt situation. So we wanted to talk about that uh, a little bit. Scott Pruitt, for those who have not heard, is the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Prior to that, he was the Attorney General of Oklahoma. As Attorney General of Oklahoma, he was known for sort of leading the charge in suing the Obama EPA to block various uh, regulations uh, he's been put in. He's one of the few cabinet members who, you know, Trump has not really clashed with on any level. Um, They seem to get along great. He's a very establishment Republican Party figure. And he's also... In a lot of corruption. What kicked off the most recent wave of these was the news that he had been renting a DC condo for $50 a night, which was a real sort of sweetheart deal. But the really sweet, sweetheart part of it is that he was only paying for the nights that he actually stayed there, which if ask your landlord if you can get that deal, uh, where you, you're you allowed to stay there anytime you want, but you only pay for the nights that you're actually there. Uh, so he's on the road enough or back home in Tulsa enough that he was only paying about $1,000 a month uh, in rent for a one-bedroom on, on Capitol Hill. That's about half the market rate. So you're technically not supposed to take bribes as a government official. Uh, Making it worse, the woman who owns the condo's husband is a lobbyist on energy issues. He approved a pipeline for, for one of his clients. So that's not good. Uh, Then there's a kind of secondary scandal about this, which is that he was trying to get a memo from EPA ethics officials saying that this was fine. Uh, Somebody said it it wasn't fine and got reassigned uh, to a a different job. He uh, has been doing a lot of expensive travel. He spent $168,000 on air travel, frequently choosing military charter jets, uh, even when there were commercial flights available. Uh, There's one point, there's a funny email exchange where a clearly sort of bored EPA ethics official is set, pointing out for the record that there are cheaper flights to Miami from DCA, but that he is aware that they don't fit the administrator's schedule. I check this out. There's like 11 daily flights from DCA <laughs> to Miami. So I don't know what kind of schedule he was on. And of uh, course, this is kind of reinvigorated what you know, Pruitt's role in the ongoing multi-scandal of Trump administration officials, you know, taking things that are kind of on the borderline of personal and public expenses. Pruitt's last go around with this was when it was revealed that he had been traveling on first class a bunch. He and the EPA defended it by saying the security costs were necessary because Pruitt could be attacked and assailed by other passengers on this plane for what he's doing at the EPA. Of course, as more stuff has come out this week, we found out that when Scott Pruitt was traveling on his personal dime, he did not take first class. So apparently the security concern is only when he is traveling on EPA business. And this is something that the deep state liberals are going to know intuitively. But it's just kind of been a reminder of that Pruitt has been one of the figures along with Ryan Zinke and Ben Carson uh, Tom Price. Now, yes, I think Tom Price, category. now former Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin. In terms of a lot of Trump administration officials have had news stories about particular expenditures that have been eh, ethically not so cool. Um, what? what distinguishes Pruitt is that 
it just has been relentless over the last week. And also that Pruitt is someone who already had a high policy profile. Yes. Well, and I think there's one more scandal we haven't gotten to in this universe of Scott Pruitt questionable. I've got like two more. Oh, okay. So I've got one more okay. and then you can yeah. fill in whatever one I'm missing. So The Atlantic um, has been doing some great reporting, particularly from Eliana Plot, about these raises at the EPA that Scott Pruitt pursued for a few of his employees, people who had worked for him in Oklahoma. And um, he was looking to give his senior counsel a pay raise of $56,000, which is obviously a very generous raise, went to the White House. The White House said, no, you cannot give her that raise. And then something kind of weird happens. Um, he goes to this somewhat uh, obscure, but something that you know certainly other administrations have known about, um, EPA regulation that lets him administratively hire people without approval from the White House. Um, this is something that is supposed to allow the EPA to bring in subject matter experts. I think it's this it's the clean or is it safe water, right? Yeah. The idea is that you might need a scientific specialist yes. on an unusual question yes. where you wouldn't like all the time have a whole EPA team that's knowledgeable about this subject. Right. So you might need to be able to do this. It might be expensive. You don't want to be going to the White House for each of these approvals. So this exists, and it seems like in previous administrations, you can get about 30 or so positions. Everything I've read about these suggests that they're pretty highly coveted. You don't want to give them out you know, willy-nilly because you only have so many of them. And so what happens or what the Atlantic has reported happened you know, after this was denied by the White House is that this one woman, the special counsel, and another woman who had come over from his Oklahoma office were moved towards these positions. They were moved into positions where they don't need White House approval on their salaries. They receive their raises. There has been some back and forth. You know, Scott Pruitt has said he he was unaware of this whole situation and took steps, corrective steps afterwards. The Atlantic says they have emails showing he was expressly aware of this situation. It likely seems unethical. Um, you know, they, this is something that the EPA has power to do to create these particular positions. But all the former EPA officials who have talked about this, they have never seen someone go from a political appointment position, one where you do need White House approval, and then be slotted into one of these um, EPA special positions. It's just usually you come in one way or the other. You don't move between the two of them to, you know, create a generous raise. So that's that's another one we have going on. I think the most genuinely corrupt out of all of these, as in the one where you, you would need to do more investigation to see what really went on, but where I could imagine, like, serious penalties coming down, is this guy, Albert Kelly, uh, was a banker in Oklahoma. He lent Pruitt money uh, to buy a house and also to buy into a minor league baseball team. And then they got into an awkward situation where Kelly um, was banned from working in the banking sector for life by the FDIC and facing $125,000 in fines. Uh, So you have this banker. Pruitt owes the banker, can't really pay him back. Also, the guy can't work in banking anymore, but he now has a $172,000 a year salary from the EPA as a senior advisor to the administrator. He has no background in environmental management or, or anything like that. They don't need a banker. He's also not allowed to work in banking. So you have to look at it, but it's like there is a lot of federal laws about bank lending and how you can and cannot repay people and whether or not you can uh, implicitly use a government salary to, to pay people back. This is the kind of thing where, you know, if Congress was remotely serious, I think we'd be trying to look into what's going on there. Uh, then the funny part that has sort of everyone in, in D.C. laughing is he's um, – some of this security stuff just seems like he wanted fancier plane flights. But like he built a secret silent phone booth <laughs> in his office. He wanted to get some kind of bulletproof desk. He needs escorts if you're on the EPA staff to come meet with him. Like you can't meet with him alone and they're not allowed to take notes at the meeting. He has a 
24-hour security team that includes 30 people. He brought that security detail with him to Disneyland and the Rose Bowl, and he wanted his security team to use the uh, sirens on their car so that he could get through traffic and get to a dinner reservation at Le Diplomat, which is a French restaurant in D.C. that New Yorkers like to make fun of, but that I guess DC Pretty people decent. like. And uh, just to like, it's, this is my yeah. my son Jose's favorite restaurant. He gets uh, a fancy did, toddler. He, he has expensive tastes, and I, I just just seafood tower or just, like just what's the his other week he um, go to. He, uh, he he enjoys the the salmon. Uh, and the French fries. <laughs> and uh, he is a huge fan of their uh, sort of cranberry walnut bread. And just to drive home. So this is like not normal for cabinet secretaries. So I think for any of us who have spent time covering cabinet secretaries or even like been around D.C., like one of the weird weird things happens in D.C. Like I've seen Elena Kagan waiting in line at Trader Joe's once, which was a very exciting D.C. celebrity sighting when I covered Kathleen Sebelius when she was HHS secretary. She, you know, might have one person with her when the Obamacare debate was heated, but it is not typical for cabinet secretaries to go around with significant details. It is certainly not typical to use sirens to get to dinner. I think that's probably pretty clear. But it is very unusual to hear of a cabinet secretary who will not allow note-taking, for example, in in their office or requires an escort at, at all times. Those just are not typical behaviors one expects from people who are leading federal agencies. Yeah, I, I think that there are a few kind of threads, that we, you know, now that we've kind of just done all the gossiping, um, although it is worth pointing out because this does tie into something thematically that, uh, you know, one of the Pruitt security officers told him that you can't just turn on your siren to go to a diplomat and was subsequently reassigned. Um, because I think that, you know, what, Sarah, what you're kind of saying is, there is the egregious use of, you know, money for things that seem personal, right? That's the kind of bulletproof desk. That's the taking the security to Disneyland. But also those can also be seen from the perspective of Scott Pruitt is running the EPA as someone who does not trust government, who does not trust the EPA in particular, and who thinks that there is a deep state out to get him, both within and outside his agency. His defense of a lot of this, you know, of like administrative hiring has been, well, the EPA is a very liberal agency, so to have people who I can trust, I need to bring them in. There's a difference between having a deregulatory agenda as the head of a regulatory agency and having a deep personal distrust of the civil servants that you are going to work with. And that latter is something we've seen in some Trump officials, but in Pruitt, and to a certain extent, I think also Ryan Zinke, what we see is that combining with the use of public funds for personal-ish things into the job of the, you know, a lot of EPA budget getting rooted to protecting the EPA administrator from inter alia EPA staff, um, which is a very weird position for a government official to be in, even if you take a take out the level of it's a little bit weird to run an agency that you think shouldn't exist. But I also think the more we learn about Pruitt's corruption, the more we understand Pruitt's paranoia, which is not that agency staff is going to uh, – beat him over the head with a baseball bat, and that's why he needs security, it's that agency staff is going to rat him out for the other corrupt stuff that he's doing. It's just completely true, right? Like, if one of the major things you want to do as the head of the EPA is misuse EPA funds to hire, uh, like, your crony crooked bankers for jobs that they are unqualified for, it becomes very important to make sure that career staff are not in a position to know about what you're doing because they might leak this information to the public. And, you know, things like the secret phone booth and stuff like that, like, they're not merely paranoia. Like, if you your plan is to engage in large-scale official misconduct, you need to set things up so that career staff are not in a position to know what it is you are getting up to. And it's clear that this has backfired on him, right? That like this flood of damaging information about Scott Pruitt didn't just all surface simultaneously like by coincidence. He's made everybody hate him and he's done all this shady stuff and like now it's coming out because it is challenging for the head of the EPA to maintain an atmosphere of total secrecy from 
the career agency staff, even though he's he's trying really hard, right? He's trying really hard to reassign people, wreck their careers, send the message that like, if you see corruption happening at this agency, help me cover it up. Like that's the message he's he's trying to send. It's a message that I think has been echoed by a lot of Donald Trump's comments about the FBI and stuff like that over the years that like, if you know what's good for you in the government, like you will turn a blind eye to acts of corruption. But so far it hasn't, you know, fully, fully taken hold. And like, that's why we have these stories. So I think that that's true, but it doesn't explain everything, right? Maybe another way to think about this is like, it's not just his own staff that Scott Pruitt needs feels he needs protecting from. It's also the public. Like he feels he needs to get a special siren escort to go to the diplomat. He's he's taking the amount of kind of out and about time in D.C. that you see of lower profile officials who don't have security details with the level of security detail that you see of like officials who don't go out that often because they don't want to disrupt D.C. life. He's, you know, taking a security detail to Disneyland. I think Rex Tillerson was not engaged in systemic corruption at state from what we know. But Rex Tillerson also had the attitude that, like, he needed to be protected from individual employees at state. And in both the cases of state and the EPA, a core element of the Trumpist worldview is that the civil service is trying to undermine the Trump administration. That, like, they are there for ideological reasons that are opposed to the ideology that the Trump administration is trying to put together, that they represent a liberal elite that hates everything that the administration stands for and that they are out to undermine it. I think we've also seen this with, personally, I'm thinking of the head of USCIS, Francis Cisna, who has made some remarks about the agency's mission that imply that he thinks everybody at the agency is a bunch of, you know, open borders softies, which is not the case, but, you know, kind of coming from this position of distrust. And I think it's, Definitely true in Scott Pruitt's case that he has a very good reason to be paranoid. But I also think it's worth thinking about this. I mean, we cannot talk about this without talking about draining the swamp, right? Like, this seems by any logical definition, by the definition that the media adopted during the 2016 campaign of like, oh, drain the swamp means there's too much waste in Washington. And like, we need to cut the fat. We need to cut budgets. That's not what the Trump administration is doing. I mean, they're proposing very skinny budgets, but like they're not rooting out waste, fraud and abuse. They're engaging in waste, fraud and abuse. And, you know, it's kind of become apparent that drain the swamp to them and to hardcore Trump supporters means there are people in D.C. who work for the government who are untrustworthy, who are not on our side. And those people need to be disempowered and purged. And from that perspective, everything Scott Pruitt is doing is perfectly okay. Right. And I think it's notable kind of in that frame that Trump has stood by Scott Pruitt. You know, what we've seen so far of him reacting is saying Scott's doing a great job. We have seen no kind of negative backlash. And maybe we will. You know, sometimes these things take time and maybe there'll be some revelation that comes up, you know, in the next few weeks that shifts this. You know, when I think back to Tom Price, for example, stepping down, it was a slow burn until it was finally unacceptable. But I think something that's, like you said, Dara, that's very different from like the Scott Pruitt and Tom Bryce situations is this exact like working around the bureaucracy. I I don't think there was as much of an attitude at HHS. There were certainly the people who implemented Obamacare, but I don't think it was as much of an us versus them um, attitude. It was less about secret conversations and, you know, a bulletproof desk and escorts everywhere. It was someone who really liked to take chartered planes and like to spend money on chartered planes. And that was ultimately Tom Price's undoing. But I think it, you know, is quite notable that Pruitt has really had the president's support through all of this. And none of these, you know, we went through like five or so scandals, um, you know, that look like scandals to us at the start of this. And those are not things that have led to, you know, the president thinking like this guy can't can't stay. He's too much of a drain on the administration at this point. There are a lot of stories about Trump maybe firing some more people that come out every so often. And Pruitt's name is mentioned in some of those stories. But what it looks like at this point has been happening is John Kelly really does not want Scott Pruitt still in at EPA. He thinks this is a massive distraction. He has been urging cabinet officials to think about what they can do legally and then take two steps back because something you can do is not necessarily something that's going to look particularly good. Donald Trump is overriding John Kelly for the moment. But furthermore, 
Donald Trump appears to still be at least somewhat considering the possibility that it looks like Scott Pruitt himself has like floated into the media at the beginning of the year that he could replace Jeff Sessions at attorney general with Scott Pruitt. There is a lot of debate among White House correspondents about whether this is something that is still a live possibility or whether it's just Scott Pruitt continuing to pump the rumor mill. But if that is the case, it would make sense because John Kelly has defended Jeff Sessions to Donald Trump saying he's doing a good job. He's over there. He's okay. Like you don't need you. You're going to do more harm than good by firing him. But Scott Pruitt appears to be over there saying Jeff Sessions, you know, committed the original sin of recusing himself from the Russia investigation. You could have me. I would be more loyal to you, even if optically it would look extremely bad. But here's what I think is important, right? You have Kelly seeming to be pushing to get rid of Pruitt on, I think, like normal chief of staffy grounds. Like, this guy is embarrassing us and, like, we could find another EPA administrator. But it's not just that Trump is defending Pruitt, right? Because sometimes there's things where it's like, oh, the madman Donald Trump is doing something and like the grownups in the room are, are on the other side. Congressional Republicans are uniformly behind Pruitt, right? The person who's isolated here is Kelly because Kelly, even though he's in some ways, like carries the torch for the true spirit of Trumpism, is very has a very marginal personal relationship to the American conservative movement, which over the past 50 years has mostly not been about immigration policy and has mostly been about destroying the regulatory state. And like Scott Pruitt is very, very close to the center of what the traditional Republican party is about and what it's there for. And they don't see him as distracting from his core job with scandals. His job is to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency. And it's challenging to destroy the Environmental Protection Agency because you can do things like Trump put forward a budget that proposed a 30 percent cut in the EPA funding. But Congress isn't going to pass that, right? It's politically toxic. I, they, I saw there was a poll uh, in, in December 2016, right, during the Obama-Trump transition, 59 percent of the public said to Gallup that stricter environmental regulation would be worth the cost uh, because public opinion is kind of a thermostat that has switched. You now have 68 percent of people in a Pew poll last month saying that the government isn't doing enough on the environment. Trump, because he's a smart politician and a shameless liar, during the campaign used to say all the time, that you know he wasn't going to do this climate change stuff, but clean air and clean water. He he was all about that. But like Pruitt's first action was to overrule EPA scientists and ignore the American Academy of Pediatrics to keep letting Dow Chemicals sell a pesticide that uh, poisons fetal brain development. We have a good explainer in January about the new memo they put out that's going to let um, factories put more. Uh, toxins into the air, not, not stuff to anything to do with climate change. You know, climate change has become like a hot button culture war issue, but like there's very little political constituency for the there should be more toxins in the air agenda. But like that's what they're doing. And Michael Grunwald had a good piece in Politico about how to an extent like Pruitt hasn't really rolled back as much of these Obama climate regulations as he sort of says he is. He's done all these press events, but there's like a complicated administrative process that has not been completed and may not work. Uh, but then Rebecca Labor, I think, rightly said on, on Twitter that Pruitt has done incredible institutional damage to the EPA in terms of sidelining career staff, using buyouts and demoralization to get people out. He simply reduced the pace of enforcement actions by an incredible level. So they're creating a situation which in a practical sense, it's easier to break the rules while moving at the margins to change what the rules are. And like wasting money on taking your security guards to Disney World is something you can do, whereas enacting the sweeping budget cuts isn't. And so Mike Rounds, who was sort of the designated Pruitt defender on some of the Sunday shows, said, you know, he's doing a great job. He's fulfilling the president's vision. And like he really is in a way that I think Tom Price wasn't and in a way that John Kelly sort of doesn't doesn't see like what the point is here. Right. From from his viewpoint, the point of the Trump administration is something about law and order. And so 
having Scott Pruitt be this unpopular embarrassment is not good. But from a Senate Republican standpoint, the point of the Trump administration is to make it easier for industry to do pollution. And Scott Pruitt's like, he's doing a bang up job. Well, in that way, the Disneyland trip like almost fits in, right? Because like what civil servants are going to want to stay at an agency or even like be able to stay at an agency? Because, you know, we've seen these things about people getting reassigned, you know, having trouble actually raising these qualms. I think one of the kind of like more boring, practical, logistical things here is that if you create that environment where it's very difficult to speak up about these sort of things where you kind of see your administrator buying bulletproof desks and, you know, buying this fancy little phone room, you know, I think it gets a lot harder for civil servants to stay there. And in that way, like those sort of actions are not completely separate from the deregulatory actions. You know, you're going to have less people who are willing to say no and stand in those sort the way of those sort of things if they're feeling demoralized by how the administrator is using agency budget. So the two, in a way, like it is almost a step towards, you know, completing these kind of deregulatory goals by just making it an uncomfortable place to work for people who might, you know, stand in the way of those sorts of policy actions. So I think that this is fair, but I also think it's pretty obvious that Scott Pruitt is over the line on some of this stuff, right? That if you think about the utility curve of, you know, of of corruption as a signal, it, he's just, there's not, I don't think that you know, the sirens at Le Diplomat are going to be the straw that forces any like EPA civil servant to leave. It's just the kind of it is pure bad press. There is literally no upside for the Trump agenda there. And this is where I kind of, you know, as as someone who covers issues where there isn't a ton of big money, like people talk about the private prison industry, but the extent to which the private prison industry actually drives the agenda as opposed to people's assessments of the politics and an ideological commitment to law and order is, I think, consistently overstated. So I tend to look at the the assumption that any politician with a deregulatory agenda is trying to line his own pockets. I, I treat that with a certain amount of suspicion, right? Like my mental model is that there are ideologues who are doing the actual work of deregulation, and that happens to primarily benefit, you know, the industries that are big financial supporters of those politicians. But like the politicians aren't thinking about it as I want to reward my friends in the energy industry. They're thinking about it as it's important that we shrink government. This kind so so a corollary to that is that when Trump first filled his cabinet, I was drawing a pretty strong distinction between, oh, okay, so he's hiring people who have political careers for the most part. Like Betsy DeVos is an obvious counterexample here. She like very obviously did not understand what the norms for a public official were supposed to be, both, you know, ethically and just informationally. Um, But people like Jeff Sessions, who, you know, it's worth noting, is mostly under attack from Trump for doing a thing that any other attorney general would do in recusing himself from the Russia investigation, who was only attached to the Russia investigation because of a couple of, you know, meetings that he took as part of the Trump campaign. Like, ethically, Jeff Sessions, I think, has, has for the most part, been, you know, he's kept his head down. He's been very focused on his agenda. Um That has been the exception rather than the rule, even among the career politicians. The fact that like Tom Price was a member of the House, he's not like a huge outsider, but had both the kind of charter flight problem and the the, you know, problems with pharma stocks that Congress managed to overlook that like Scott Pruitt came in as Oklahoma attorney general and had a bubbling email scandal over his use of several separate personal and and public email accounts that the Senate just decided not to deal with in confirming him. These are things that I think of as being kind of too sloppy for career politicians. I, I feel like my mental model is that career politicians understand that you just don't have to do this stuff. And so I'm beginning to wonder, like, am I wrong or is Donald Trump just singularly uncareful in picking people who are not only invested in deregulation, but also in it to line their own pockets. I think it may be more the signal that Trump and Trump's political success show, you know, is kind of like uncapping some of the norms that might exist around here in a a way that 
I kind of look at this and I say, you know what? Like Scott Pruitt has meaningfully reduced his odds of winning a Republican primary nomination for senator or governor of Oklahoma in the future, right? That Oklahoma is a very conservative state. I'm not sure that these kind of penny ante scandals would let a Democrat beat him. But just like if you're an Oklahoma Republican, like former attorney general, former right-wing EPA administrator, that seems like a good candidate for governor, for Senate, you know, when, when those seats become vacant. Now it looks like a good issue for an attorney general of Oklahoma or a House member from Oklahoma to use against Pruitt in a primary. And he's being very imprudent. But like Trump himself is insanely corrupt. He is constantly being criticized by, you know, liberal elites for this insane level of corruption. Trump people are now working themselves into a mindset where somehow corruption is good because Trump does it and he's attacked by the bad people for it. So, you know, it it, it creates a kind of, I think, like smash and grab mentality throughout the federal government in a way that, you know, Trump himself is inconsistent about, right? He kind of – he pushed Price off the cliff in a way that seemed ironic in light of what's going on with Trump's hotel. But he is defending Pruitt and seems to be getting everybody to circle the wagons around him. And this is how – you do have like an evolution of standards, right? Like when the president is not holding himself to any kind of normal standard of – honest dealings or, or business conduct, it it indicates to other people, particularly younger cohorts of, you know, up and coming Republicans that this is what you're supposed to do. So I'm not sure that I agree with that because I do think that in the cases where people have been pushed out, their replacements have taken a much more head down approach. This is not quite a pushing out thing, but when Trump had to withdraw his secretary of labor nomination, you know, the like Alex Acosta has been a pretty head-down Secretary of Labor. Alex Azar has been a very head-down Secretary of HHS. Like, I feel like if we were seeing norm erosion, we would be seeing stories about the replacements for these dudes at a similar pace that we were seeing the stories about their predecessors. But, like, the other thing that that flags for me is I don't know that we can say that Scott Pruitt is a unique deregulatory genius, right? Like, yes, he's doing a bunch of stuff that— is going to have a problem, it's going to create problems at the agency. But I am still not convinced that he's doing, that like a more disciplined ideologue who was committed to both deregulation and, you know, diminishing morale, but didn't go over the line to just like the obviously dumb stuff, wouldn't be a more effective EPA administrator. And so this is kind of my question for like the conservative movement, which is kind of maintaining something of a hold on we don't like all of this excessive government spending. What is Scott Pruitt's value over a replacement administrator that like it's so worth it to defend him? Well, so we'll have to see, right? Because for up until this week or so, there's been no deputy at EPA. But it looks like Republicans finally uh, sort of dragged together a couple of votes from Heidi Heitkamp and Joe Manchin to confirm this coal lobbyist guy as the number two at EPA. Once that's done, Republicans Republicans have 51 seats in the Senate, but due to the health problems of a couple of their members, plus uh, Susan Collins being wishy-washy, it's actually challenging for them to do tough confirmations. But with Manchin and Heitkamp, uh, probably some other red state Dems will, will vote yes on this guy. He will get in. It'll be interesting to see if Pruitt becomes suddenly more dispensable when he has a confirmed deputy in place who conservatives regard as a also completely reliable. Yeah. And I mean, I think if I look at the lesson from Price, um, HHS has been able to do a lot more without having this constant attention on chartered flights. Like they are about to kick a lot of people off Medicaid with work requirements, like to Dara's point. I think the counter argument I would think of to that, again, is this idea of just like demoralizing and beating down the EPA to the point where you see career staff leaving, where you see the agency like just not able to function normally because of all this norm disruption might be one possible positive to having someone who's just willing to blow all these up. But I I think I lean more towards your argument, Dara, that, you know, I think it is notable. Alex Azar has been a totally different HHS secretary than Price was. Um, He's brought back a lot of the norms that I was familiar with with HHS of doing regular briefings with press and like just running the agency much more similar to what I was used to in the eight years of the 
Obama administration, and um, they're accomplishing a lot through regulation while while doing that. But, you know, I think that conservatives, to give them their due, believe in the conservative health policy agenda. Like, they think that imposing work requirements on Medicaid will save the public money, increase labor force participation, and have minimal negative impacts on public health. I believe that they believe that. I don't believe that they believe that just not having any environmental regulation will somehow make the air cleaner. So they're just trying to nuke it in a way that I don't really think is true. Like Azar is doing things because there's things that they want HHS to do. I think if just everybody called in sick at the EPA tomorrow, conservatives say that's great. I think the just, other just thing, don't come back. This is also, in a way, a test of the deep state hypothesis, right? Like the theory of the deep state as it exists right now as a Trumpist trope is that a lot of civil servants are committed to liberal government policies and will thwart any effort to impose conservative government policies. If that were really the case, and you were running a natural experiment here, you would expect attrition rates at HHS to be similar to attrition rates at EPA because in both cases, the policy being pursued is conservative policy. And if that were really such anathema to government workers, they would peace out. If conversely, we do not see that kind of attrition or that kind of you know more massive morale problem at HHS that we see at EPA, that's an indication that it's not that government civil servants servants only see their job as worthwhile if they're accomplishing liberal ends. It's that government civil servants want to be doing some sort of work. Consistently, what I've heard from folks in DHS and you know, to a certain extent the State Department is that the frustrating thing about all this immigration stuff is that they aren't getting to do their jobs at all, which is the same thing that ICE agents were saying under Obama. They had a certain idea of what the ambit of their jobs was, and that ambit was being shrunk. So that may be something that isn't necessarily about what policy end are you accomplishing, but if you have a job in government, because you don't want to be just sitting at a desk all day collecting a paycheck, because you want to actually be doing a thing, and the administration of your agency prevents you from doing anything that is, in fact, worse than the administration of your agency directing you to do things that you might disagree with, but that are still actual work. All right, let's stop for the sirens. Oh. Is it Scott Pruitt? Is he going to brunch with <laughs> the diplomat? <laughs> we're pausing right now because we're in a temporary studio and there's a motorcade going by. It may or may not contain Scott Pruitt. I think we're going to assume it contains Scott Pruitt. <laughs> for the it's probably Mike Pence going to South America. To be perfectly honest, that's boring. That's <laughs> all right. That's, okay, okay. Take- maybe we should take a break. Talk about some ambulances. Sponsored this week by Policy Genius. Uh, 71% of people say that they need life insurance, but only 55% of people actually have coverage. That means at least 12% of the population is procrastinating. And you know what? Procrastinating, it's a bad thing. But if you've been avoiding getting life insurance, then actually congratulations in this case, because while you were procrastinating, Policy Genius was making life insurance easier. So what is it? Policy Genius is the easy way to compare life insurance online. You can compare quotes in just five minutes. And when it's that easy, putting it off it becomes a lot harder. You know, you're sitting on the couch watching TV, you can compare quotes while you're listening to this podcast. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy, they also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. Uh, so if you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off because it's too confusing, you don't have the time, check out Policy Genius. It's the easy way to compare top insurers and get the best value for you. There's no sales pressure, zero hassle, and it's totally free. So where do you go? You go to policygenius.com. When it's this easy to compare life insurance, why put it off? This is Yochi Driesen from Worldly, Fox's weekly podcast on the most important stories in the world. I've worked in journalism for nearly 20 years, and even I feel a bit overwhelmed by the news right now. There's President Trump and Vladimir Putin. I had a call with President Putin and congratulated him on the victory, his electoral victory. And there's the North Korean nuclear crisis. North Korea best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. And then there's the Russia investigation. The Russians may have something on him personally uh, that they could always roll out and make his life more difficult. Want to make sense of all of this? Subscribe to Worldly. Run packing all of these stories and more every week.
Come find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. So we haven't talked about the Affordable Care Act in a while, so we're going to go back with a working paper that is titled Ambulance Utilization in New York City After the Implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And this study, it's from um, three health economists, Charles Courtmanch, um, Daniel Reese, and Andrew Friedson. It looks at kind of this question that always bubbles up in health economics when you expand coverage is, does this ultimately reduce costs because people are able to get the preventative care they need or when people get better access to health care, they just spend more money on everything? And it does this in a kind of interesting way, a little bit different than other studies I've seen, such as the Oregon experiment, the RAND experiment. It focuses on use of ambulances and what happened in New York City when the Affordable Care Act expanded coverage to ambulance rides. And it has two findings that point in kind of different directions that suggest it's a little bit nuanced what happens to how people use care when the price of care goes down. So the first finding, and this is kind of in line with what we've seen in the RAND study, the Oregon study, is that there were significantly more ambulance rides for things that are, the authors deem non-urgent, that people seem to be using ambulances in situations where they weren't necessarily um, needed. And I will say ambulances are incredibly expensive. Um, a lot of them are built out of network. Like every other part of healthcare, there's no price regulation. And so they kind of see this as an increase in wasteful spending, that these ambulance rides that are getting people with non-urgent healthcare needs to a hospital, that that's a decent amount of spending that probably isn't making anyone healthier. But the thing that surprised me in this paper was actually they also decided to look at ambulance rides among pregnant women. And they didn't find any increase in ambulance rides for women who were going into labor. But they actually saw a decline in pre-labor ambulance rides. And one of the things they note is a lot of the reasons women go to the hospital while they are pregnant is due to some kind of manageable condition that's become unmanageable, things like diabetes, depression, high blood pressure. And so I think it is notable one of the things the Affordable Care Act did is it made prenatal care um, cost-sharing free. So you would not face co-pays or deductibles while seeking prenatal care. So it, it suggests the issue is a little more nuanced than you get better health insurance, so you just use more health care. It suggests, at least with the structure of pregnancy coverage, that having that better access to preventive care during this very particular time in life actually might reduce healthcare spending in some sort of meaningful way. I think that at the level of individual decisions, these two point in the same direction, right? In both cases, you have, on one hand, non-pregnant people who would have made a decision before the Affordable Care Act to say, this looks pretty bad, but I can weather it out. You know, I can have my buddy drive me to the hospital. It's not the end of the world. I'll just wait in the emergency room. It's fine. Who are now saying, this is pretty bad. I should call an ambulance and have them come get me. And then you have pregnant women, not at the point of calling an ambulance, but at the point of, of going, I have this manageable condition that's still causing me some problems, where before the Affordable Care Act, they would have said, it's not worth it to go to a doctor's visit just to deal with this. It's not worth it to find a specialist just to deal with this. They're now making that decision earlier so that it's not getting to the point of, you know, it's it's still a decision to consume more health care. It's just a decision that is ultimately on net saving money in the case of the pregnant women. But I think that from the kind of behavioral economic standpoint of like, well, people are doing this because they feel a certain degree of safety in using healthcare spending, that like those are consistent. It's more kind of at the actuarial level that the trends are pointing in different directions. So, you know, one thing about this is that I I hope that we will see an effort to replicate this study someplace else because New York City has a very unique uh, transportation situation relative to the rest of the country in which the sort of drive yourself to the hospital versus call an ambulance margin actually looks very different than what it does in most of America. Uh, mainstream New Yorkers often do not own cars, which is not the case literally any place else in the country. The traffic is also much, much worse than any place else in the country. So the like utility of an ambulance ride is way higher there than, than in other places, which, you know, I, I'd like to see elsewhere. But, you know, this study, it does get to one of the most fundamental disagreements between like wonks and normies on healthcare is on the question of quantities of healthcare 
consumption. Right. I mean, I think the overwhelming consensus among any normal person that you speak to is that like a really bad thing about America is that even people who think of themselves as having good health insurance face meaningful price barriers to the consumption of healthcare services and everything should be way, way, way cheaper. And, you know, you can see very explicit statements of this thesis from Bernie Sanders. But I mean, I think it, it resonates with just like all kinds of people that like it's not just sad that uninsured people have no insurance, but that like everybody should be able to like summon medical care really cheaply or free like all the time and then like nobody in the expert community agrees with that thesis. There's uniform belief among experts that huge quantities of unnecessary or low utility care are consumed and that it would be desirable to perhaps increase volumes of preventative care that are consumed by select populations but that like the typical American consumes too much health care. You know, while the ACA did expand healthcare coverage and in this particular case seems to have increased consumption of healthcare services, broadly speaking, the ACA's designers are from the want consensus, right? And like lots of measures in the ACA were aimed at decreasing uh, consumption of healthcare services and sort of trying to redistribute healthcare consumption so that the previously uninsured would get more stuff, certain categories of preventative services, you know, birth control sort of most, most famously in politics would get covered more. But we were also trying to bend the cost curve, uh, implement administrative reforms, impose this Cadillac tax, this kind of thing. And you know, it was one of the real ways that I think the law politics wound up blowing up, right? That like people want either like giant tax cuts or free healthcare services. And the Affordable Care Act didn't give them like the right, like the like real world conservatives just want more money and real world liberals want more free shit from the government. And the ACA was like a complex you know, scheme to do sort of neither of those things. We look in this study at a particular population of people who got access to free ambulance rides. But like broadly speaking, the aim of the policy wasn't just like give everybody all the free medical care they want. I mean, well, that said, though, like the logic of the ACA was for the most part not we're going to deter people from seeking out, you know, we're going to deter individual healthcare decisions. It was we're going to structure the healthcare market, which is often this very corporatist, you know, various sectors negotiating prices with each other so that those prices end up being lower. So, like, ambulance visits are something of an, an anomaly here because there's no in-house doctor whose job it is to tell you if you need to call an ambulance or not. There's literally no way that you can really, like, change that action without telling people you should just consume less health care. And then we get into the reality of people not knowing enough about their bodies to know what is an urgent thing and what is a non-urgent thing. Well, I think ambulances are kind of an interesting case to me because for a lot of people, they really didn't get cheaper with the Affordable Care Act. And one thing I'd be curious about is if you replicated this study a few years from now, if you'd see different results, one of the things, you know, that when you often call an ambulance, you, you don't get much say about which ambulance picks you up. And if they are in your insurance network, you often just call 911. You say you're having a medical emergency. They dispatch. Um, there's been some fascinating research, particularly on New York's ambulance dispatching. And because the Affordable Care Act plans are generally pretty high deductible, you know, we're talking about $7,000 deductibles for individuals, 14000 for families. Often these ambulance rides, you know, don't end up being very free. You know, I currently run a project here at Vox where we're collecting emergency room bills. And one of the things you see there are a lot of people paying thousands of dollars out of pocket for an ambulance ride that either was out of network or was in network, but was in their deductible. Um, so I think one of the kind of like interesting things that might be happening, because we're just looking, this paper only goes through 2016. So we're looking at three years of ACA implementation is that there might be an impression like, oh, I got health insurance. I can take ambulances now. And I would be curious if you re if you repeated this study, you know, for another five years, if that attitude would still exist or if there'd be a realization like, holy shit, ambulances are still incredibly expensive to ride in. From what we know about people's decisions about healthcare spending, though, is that something that like, you know, everybody after a few years is going to find out that ambulance rides aren't that expensive or either because 
no one person takes an ambulance all that frequently or because they're not kind of updating their priors on I have health insurance now, that they're just going to kind of keep getting shocked with this every few years. Yeah, it's a I mean, it's a good question. It's also a bit of like playing a lottery, right? Like ambulance prices vary hugely like all other American healthcare prices. So sometimes you'll get a cheap ambulance and sometimes you'll get an expensive ambulance. And like, you know, when I've been interviewing a lot of people who have gone to the emergency room and ended up with bills they can't afford, you know, they're a little stuck. You know, if I ask, well, what would you do in a future situation? They'd probably repeat the same actions because they believed it was a true emergency. But, um, you know, with ambulances and particularly like in New York City, there's actually been some fascinating reporting about um, people using things like Uber and Lyft to replace for ambulance, kind of seeing how expensive those are. Uber drivers do not like this because it creates a huge liability for them to have like someone with a serious injury in the back of their car. But that'd be, you know, and there is a little bit of research. I think it's also out of New York City, but I'd have to double check um, that suggests you have seen some substitution effects as Uber and Lyft have become more prevalent of people substituting those ride sharing services for ambulances. I mean, fundamentally, I'm really struck now that I'm a parent and I interact with the healthcare system more, how much Kenneth Arrow's old point from decades ago about the information asymmetry involved really matters. That like, on behalf of my son, we've consumed like a lot of healthcare services. As far as I can tell, none of them have been useful ex post, right? And I think if you could somehow split us into some other just like zen couple who's always like, eh, it's probably fine, it would all been fine. But ex ante, you don't, no, right? Like sick kid needs to see a doctor to see if the illness that he has is strep throat. It's only after you get the antibiotics for your ear infection and you take them that it becomes clear that the antibiotics are ineffective because actually it was viral. And it's hard even for doctors to know exactly what's going on. And it strikes me as, you know, there's a question about like how much ambulance services we want to dispatch to people and under what circumstances, but that ultimately it's going to have to be resolved through some kind of central planning mechanism as unsatisfying as that's going to be on some level, but like creating a sovereign consumer about technical questions in medical science that they have no basis for evaluating is like... It doesn't work. It doesn't It doesn't make any kind of sense. I mean, this is literally the public health argument for treating healthcare as a public good, right? Like, on a certain level, like, it, it is empirically satisfactory for everyone to be making individual healthcare decisions based on what they can personally afford. And, like, whether you find that morally acceptable or not is an argument. But the public health argument is... Okay, but if you have an infectious disease and you can't afford care, that is no longer just your problem. So it it makes perfect sense that this kind of information asymmetry is, you know, that that it exists, that it's not – we don't have a world and we can't have a world where everyone is going to be making the perfect decision about, like, how much of my marginal money is it worth it for the risk uh, that this is an actually serious thing and getting it right every time. But even if they could get it right, that wouldn't necessarily solve the problem of, like, emergency room visits are less likely to be things that are going to have negative externalities on other people. But like a lot of healthcare is that. And so how do you create a system where people are both resilient enough that they don't use the services they don't need, but also other focused enough to know that even if something is a manageable thing for them right now, it may not be for other people down the road. Well, Maybe we'll have driverless ambulances soon and we can solve this Maybe problem. Maybe we'll have all-payer rate setting. Ooh, all right. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, Sarah's teasing Friday. We are going to bring on uh, Dylan Scott. We're going to we're gonna talk about all-payer rate setting. Some new hotness in California. The people have been demanding an all-payer rate setting episode. This is all for the clicks. For the clicks. Listens. Well, for the downloads, because uh, this is a downloads-driven business. So the thought you don't want to leave you with, download this podcast, of course. Subscribe to this podcast, of course. Tell your friends to subscribe, share it on your social medias, get your other Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts, listen to Today Explained absolutely every single day. Download Um, all the Vox Media podcasts so that in case you're stuck in traffic because the EPA administrator wants to go to brunch, (laughs) you have something to listen to. Exactly. I mean, you don't have those sirens. You're not going to call frivolous ambulances. You're not going to misuse your security detail. You need something to listen to. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Uh, Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong, and uh, we will see you on Friday. 
Friday.